Hi, I'm Lewis, and welcome to Searching for It. Before beginning today, just a really quick note. Since the fifth episode of Searching for It, I've committed to releasing an episode every month, each one landing on the first Monday of the month. But moving forward, I'd much rather be able to spend as much time on each episode as each one warrants, and to be able to release the episode as soon as it's ready to go. So from here, I won't be delaying the release of any episode, they'll all be out for you to enjoy as soon as the finishing touches have been put together. I'm hoping that the norm will still be something like an episode a month, and to keep you in the loop, I'll continue updating the show's Facebook and Instagram pages once each episode is released. And to those of you Patreon subscribers, you'll continue to have access to each episode three days early, directly via the show's Patreon page. But now, moving on to the podcast. In recent episodes, we've looked at some pretty audacious topics. The idea that we might be living in a simulation, the idea that aliens are probably out there somewhere, and why they haven't made contact just yet. They're the kind of topics that have spawned a hundred different sci-fi novels and films, you know, the likes of The Matrix and a ton of different alien movies. And sometimes these kinds of ideas that you find in sci-fi, they make for a nice story and a bit of fantasy, they're not making any predictions as to how anything actually is in the real world. You know, when Melissa Madison wrote E.T., I don't think she was trying to tell us that there really is a cute little alien with healing powers hiding away somewhere on Earth. But equally, sometimes, the ideas you'll find in sci-fi aren't so wide of the mark. Sometimes they'll stick, and they tell us something about the real world, and they inspire real-life people to do real-life things. Take H.G. Wells, for example. He's the guy who wrote War of the Worlds. Well, in 1899, he wrote another book, not quite as popular, called The Sleeper Awakes. And in this book, you find this futuristic library full of what Wells called these peculiar cylinders. These were strange little contraptions that you could put into a machine in order to generate these colourful figures that jumped all around on a screen. Well, reading this book with what we know now, these devices don't sound quite as strange in fact, they sound just like something that we've all used, at least those of you born before the year 2000. They sound like VCR tapes. But what makes this worth mentioning is the timing of the book. Wells wrote about these peculiar cylinders 70 years before the first VCR player hit the market, and before the first video camera had even been invented. And there are a ton of other cool examples too. I mean, you've got Robert Goddard, the father of modern rockets, it was actually in Wells' most popular book, War of the Worlds, that he found inspiration for his liquid fueled rockets that ultimately paved the way for modern-day space exploration. And then more recently, you can find driverless cars all the way back in a book by Arthur C. Clarke from 1976, and they're only just starting to get churned out today. Sometimes these kinds of works of science fiction are just lucky guesses, throw enough mud at the wall and at least some of it'll stick but sometimes their ideas do directly go on to inspire the work of future inventors, and perhaps in at least some instances, spawning inventions that wouldn't have ever come about if it weren't for that initial piece of science fiction. And that kind of story is exactly what prefigures the stuff I want to look at in today's episode. So back in 1931, Neil R. Jones wrote a short piece of science fiction called The Jameson Satellite. What's going on in this book is there's a professor... He's getting older, and he's starting to think about the fact that one day he's going to die. He doesn't really like the sound of this. He doesn't want to just disappear to be gone forever. So he looks around at the kinds of ways that he can stop this from happening. 
And one thing he remembers is the ancient Egyptians and the way in which they would mummify their pharaohs to keep their bodies preserved for thousands of years. But, he thinks, even that wouldn't keep him in good condition forever. Even then, his body will eventually disintegrate. It won't keep him preserved forever. One day he'll be gone just as surely as if he were cremated upon his death. So he looks around for some other kinds of inspiration, and and one thing he thinks about is the woolly mammoths. He remembers that you have some woolly mammoths, and I think this is absolutely crazy, who have been almost perfectly preserved for around 40,000 years. And obviously, they weren't embalmed like the ancient Egyptian pharaohs. They were just kept so well because they'd been frozen. So the professor thinks about this. He notices that the conditions that the woolly mammoths were frozen in weren't perfect. They ended up just being frozen outside in nature. So he thinks, if he could preserve himself in perfect conditions, at a temperature close to absolute zero, there's no saying how long he could keep himself preserved for. And that's what he does. He asks his nephew to load his body up into a spaceship when he dies, asks him to fire the spaceship up into space where it can orbit the Earth at a temperature only just above absolute zero. Now, this is where the science fails a bit. The author of the book thought that if a rocket were orbiting the Earth, it'd be close to absolute zero in temperature, and this hasn't turned out to be correct. So firing yourself up into space in order to orbit the Earth might not preserve your body quite as well as the author had thought. But for the purposes of the book, that's what happened. The professor's eventually loaded up into his rocket, fired into space where he orbits the Earth, in the book literally for millions of years, way past the end of human civilization, kept in perfect condition. And at some point in the future, a fleet of aliens come across the rocket, where they take his body, plug him into a machine to bring him back to life, and try to figure out why he'd been orbiting the Earth for the last few million years. Now, the practice of firing dead bodies into outer space in order to preserve them hasn't stuck in real life, and I'm going to put my neck on the line and predict that this probably won't happen. But what Jones's story did do is inspire the work of a certain Robert Ettinger, who read the Jameson satellite at just 12 years old. It was clear that the technology in this story wouldn't work, a satellite orbiting the Earth wouldn't be anywhere close to absolute zero in temperature, so sending a body to space wouldn't be a fast-track ticket to eternal preservation. But, even if a body couldn't be frozen in space, maybe a body could be preserved if it were frozen somewhere else. This is exactly what Robert Ettinger wondered. In fact, he spent a lot of time thinking about it, so much so that he wrote a whole book on it called The Prospect of Immortality. And he didn't stop there. In 1976, Robert went on to found the Cryonics Institute. For those of you who haven't heard anything about cryonics, it's basically the practice of preserving dead bodies at very low temperatures, preserving them as best as you can with as little damage done as possible, with the view that maybe one day if medical science develops far enough, we might be able to reanimate the body to bring them back to life. The idea is that we don't have the capabilities to bring bodies back to life yet, but if there's at least some chance that we might be able to do so in the future, then why not undergo cryonics and give yourself at least a chance of coming back to life, maybe a few hundred years in the future? If there's at least some chance this would work, what's the sense in having your body buried or cremated and just accepting death as a brute fact? It all started with that one short story by Neil Jones, and just 45 years later, the Cryonics Institute is open for business and they're still alive and kicking today. Etten just since passed away, and instead of being cremated or buried, he's had his body preserved, and it's stored today in a tank of liquid nitrogen in their facility in Michigan, 
along with almost 200 other bodies. It costs a fair bit of money, something like $200,000 to preserve your whole body. You can get a discount if you just want your head preserved. So it's not the kind of thing you can really just sign up for on a whim. But as of today, the Cryonics Institute has almost 2,000 people signed up, all waiting to have their bodies preserved and sent off to Michigan when they pass away. You can see a map on their website of where their members come from. They've had people sign up from Russia, China, from Costa Rica, Aruba, all the way to Madagascar. And in fact, those of you who listened to the last episode might remember me talking about a researcher called Anders Sandberg. He was part of that team who wrote a paper debunking the Fermi Paradox, and he was also the one who came up with the estivation hypothesis, the idea that the reason the aliens haven't contacted us quite yet is they might all be sleeping, biding their time until the universe cools, billions of years in the future, where they can use their resources to run many, many more times as many computational processes. Well, anyway, he's actually a big name in the cryonics world, and he's actually signed up himself at another company, Alcor, to have his head preserved when he dies. If you watch any video or interview with Sandberg online, you can see that he wears this tag on a necklace always above his clothes. What this necklace is, is it's essentially a message. It's designed to be read by whoever's with him when he dies. And it tells them that he's to be preserved as quickly as possible. And the necklace has some instructions for them, such as no autopsy, cool with ice, and contact details for alcohol. And if it hasn't already... This is where cryonics all starts to sound really weird. However you feel about the prospect of life extension and bringing people back from the dead, there's no getting around just how unsettling the process of cryonics actually is. So if you were to sign up at Alcor or the Cryonics Institute to have your body preserved, as with Sandberg, you'd need to wear this necklace or a bracelet at all times to make sure that your body's dealt with properly when you die. Because the thing is, really... Whoever's with you when you die needs to begin the process of preservation straight away, within the first 15 minutes ideally to minimise the amount of damage done. Because the longer you take, the more damage that will be done to your cells, and the lower the chance that you can ever be brought back to life in the future. But this raises a difficulty, you don't know how you're going to die, when you're going to die, you don't know whether a medical team could be on hand within 15 minutes, and whether they'll have the right equipment to preserve your body because it's not as if cryonic preservation is a routine job for paramedics. So what the Cryonics Institute have put together is a set of instructions and emergency kit to preserve your body right away. And if necessary, it might not be a medical team performing this. The idea is that you'll tell your loved ones that you intend to cryonically preserve your body, and once a year or so you'll give them a little refresher course on how they can go about preserving your body. And there's a load of information on the Cryonics Institute website about this, but... I'll be honest, it, it makes for grim reading. The thought that upon your death, your partner, your parents, your own children wouldn't have time to mourn. They've got to be straight in there, putting your body in an ice bath, injecting chemicals directly into your heart and packaging and sending your body across to Michigan. It's nasty stuff for sure. But even when you've got past this initial hurdle of making sure that the people around you at your death know that you want to be preserved, and you've put things in order such that they can act on your body straight away, is that... Basically, the consensus among scientists is that this probably won't work anyway. I mean, we do know that we can preserve bodies pretty well. Alcor and the Cryonics Institute have been doing this for decades already, and they should last for a very long time. But the difficulty comes with actually reanimating the bodies, bringing them back to life. 
For a lot of reasons, this would prove very difficult, not just today, but ever. The thing is, when you want to unfreeze the body and restore life, it's really difficult to do so without creating extensive cell damage. It's so difficult that, as I say, I think the majority of scientists think we just won't ever be able to do this. And in fact, from what I gather, the whole practice of cryonics is seen as something of a joke amongst a lot of scientists. It can be a bit of a career killer if you come out of the freezer, as it were, as a cryonics advocate. And this kind of scepticism has spurred quite a bit of backlash against organisations like Alcor. So back in 2016, there was a British teenager with cancer, just 14 years old, and they went to court to fight for their right to have their body cryonically preserved. Well, the teenager won the case, and I think their body is actually preserved to this day. But the father, it was reported in the news, really wasn't happy about this. He'd had discussions with the Cryonics Institute, he'd spoken to them, and he'd left feeling like their business model was built upon exploiting the anxieties of the vulnerable and the dying. Because as far as he's concerned, there's no scientist on Earth who can say with any degree of confidence that cryonics will ever work. And they're taking hundreds of thousands of dollars off of these vulnerable patients on the basis of some imagined fantasy. In this sense, cryonics might sound more like a form of faith than hard science. It's built on the hope that it might someday work. There's no proof, but what's worse is that this form of faith costs $200,000. Personally, though, I don't find that to be the most convincing attitude to take towards cryonics. What seems much more compelling to me is the way that people like Sandberg talk about cryonics, which is basically as a kind of insurance. Sure, we don't know that cryonics will work. In fact, we might be rather confident that it won't. I think Sandberg assigned something like 5% to the chance that it'll ever be brought back to life. But if you can afford it, and obviously that's a big if then maybe it seems like a small amount to pay to give yourselves a shot at a much longer life. Because that's just how any form of insurance works. You don't know if you'll ever crash your car, and you don't know if you'll ever require expensive healthcare. In fact, you might be pretty confident that you'll remain fit and well for the next few years. But you pay your insurance premiums just in case you do. And who knows, it might end up being worth a gamble. And equally, at least for the few who could afford it. Perhaps it's worth gambling on cryonics, just in case it were to one day work. Once you go down this route, though, and you grant wealthy people the right to preserve their bodies at a high cost, it brings up some pretty shady questions. Like, for example, if any given person's opportunity to cryonically preserve their body depends on their wealth and, and their ability to drop a few hundred thousand dollars on the off chance that it might work, what does this say about the kinds of people who'd be reanimated in the future? If it's just the wealthiest among us who are able to live forever, are they the kinds of people we want to be driving the future of humanity? And is this fair? It's one thing if only the wealthy can drive fancy cars, live in big houses and go jetting across the planet. But a world in which the wealthy can actually live for many times as long as the rest of us, a world where you can buy a second chance at life, might seem a step too far. In which case, maybe... Should chronic preservation be a human right available to all? Or should we select only the best among us to live forever? It raises some tricky questions for sure, but these kinds of ethical dilemmas aren't really what I want to focus on in this episode. It's crazy with chronics because there are so many interesting questions connected to the topic, so many avenues this episode could explore. But what I really want to focus on are some of the core philosophical questions that chronics brings up, 
and the ways that our answers to these questions might alter the meaning that we assign to our own lives and the very ways in which we understand who we are. Because once you start thinking about these kinds of questions, it's not always absolutely clear whether cryonics is the kind of thing we should even be considering pursuing. Of any topic of debate, and if your friends are interested in talking about these kinds of things, maybe try it out with them, cryonics really seems one of the most divisive, and it could really get people's back up. I think I'm personally in the camp who thinks it could be a really beneficial technology, but those on the other side might give one of a few different reasons as to why we really shouldn't be interested in chronically preserving people. So, you know, they might say that, maybe, a life where we never died would just get plain boring after a while. Or equally, maybe taking away death would be to take away what gives our lives colour in the first place. Because if we had forever to do whatever we like, what would be the point in living in the now? The present moment would lose its significance and its beauty. But I think in making that kind of argument, you have to be really careful in making a really important distinction between immortality and life extension. Because remember, cryonics isn't going to allow you to live forever. It's not going to make you immortal. What it does do is it allows you to be brought back to life in your physical body to have another shot. But eventually something's going to happen to us. Maybe we'll suffer some illness, get some virus that we can't cure... Maybe we'd say enough's enough and decide to end our own lives after a while. Or give it enough time and eventually the universe will collapse, we'll all die and cryonics isn't going to save us from that one. The point being that immortality isn't what's on the agenda here. We won't live forever either way. What's on offer is more modest, just life extension. And once you frame the conversation in this way, it doesn't seem all so controversial anymore. As opposed to immortality... All you have to do to show that life extension is worthwhile is take the thought that I'm happy to be living today and I would like to live tomorrow and just extrapolate that thought until the day that we eventually decide we've had enough. There doesn't have to be any talk of life becoming too boring, of life becoming meaningless, because if we ever lived long enough that that became the case, well, hey, we can just choose to end it. And being able to make the choice to end our own lives rather than just accepting our fate when illness strikes, surely that must be a good thing. I mean, imagine the reverse argument. Imagine trying to say, for example, that the coronavirus outbreak isn't such a bad thing because people have to die for life to have had meaning in the first place. It'd be a ridiculous argument to make. You might be right that our eventual mortality makes life meaningful, but that doesn't mean that we should accept shorter than necessary lives. It doesn't mean that those patients need to die today. It seems that we can have the best of both worlds. We can accept that eventually one day we'll die, so our lives have meaning. But through cryonic preservation, we can push that date back until the day that we've had enough. Ultimately, if cryonics is only going to extend our lives until we suffer some final death, it's probably not going to shatter the meaning of our existence, because it's not giving us immortality, just making our lives a bit longer. But cryonics isn't the only form of life extension that scientists and philosophers and the like are talking about. Putting our sci-fi hats back on for the minute, the other avenue that maybe might one day be open to us could be some kind of mind uploading. So firstly, what we mean by mind uploading is, broadly speaking, running a human mind on something other than a human brain. So this is based on the idea that the human mind is essentially a piece of software that can run on multiple types of hardware, 
and the human brain is just one of these possible pieces of hardware. Perhaps at some point in the future, if we were able to fully recreate all the different processes that go on within a human brain, but run those processes in something else, like maybe in a computer or in an artificial brain, we could essentially run a fully conscious human mind on this other piece of hardware. But to be clear, as with cryonics, whether or not mind uploading could ever be possible is a huge area of debate within philosophy. As I said earlier, when you talk about life extension, you always find yourself coming back to these fundamental philosophical questions, and this is another one of those questions. What is consciousness, and could it ever be generated by something other than a human brain? There's only so much I can say about each of these debates within philosophy without turning this into a five-part episode. So what I want to do is just give some food for thought about these kinds of philosophical puzzles. And I'll put up some cool podcasts, books and YouTube videos onto the recommended reading page of the Searching For It website, so you can dive a bit deeper into any of these topics if you find them interesting. But for now, in terms of mind uploading, there's a big disagreement as to whether this is even in theory possible. You've basically got two types of people. On the one hand, there are those who think that the human mind is essentially constituted by certain physical things, maybe by processes that occur within a brain or by a person's ability to react to different events. And according to these people, if you were able to replicate these kinds of things in something other than a human brain, maybe if you programmed a computer to run the same kinds of processes that occur within a human brain, all react to events in the same kind of way, you'd have to imagine that this computer is every bit as conscious as a human being. Obviously, we're a long way from being able to do this right now. The human brain is enormously complex. The best estimates today say that there are around 86 billion neurons in a brain, and we don't have anything close to a full picture as to what that actually looks like. But as time passes, as our understanding of neuroscience develops, and we better understand the kinds of processes that go on within human brains, the better we'd be able to replicate those processes in something else, maybe in a computer program. And according to the kinds of people who think that we could really in the future build a human mind on something other than a human brain, what you'd probably want to do then is something like scan a human brain, make a full map of all of its neural pathways, and recreate it in a computer. And if you were to then run that simulated brain in some computer program, well, hey, you might well have uploaded that person's mind. But as I say, this hasn't been proven. We don't know if this is possible, if this is how the mind works. And equally, there's a big group of people who say that this simply can't be done. If you're in this camp, you'd presumably want to say that there's more to the mind than these kinds of physical processes. There's more to our minds than just the things that go on in our brains. You'd want to say that the mind doesn't just emerge from complex physical processes. You'd want to say that there's something more to it. Maybe some kind of mystical, non-physical soul something that you can't grasp just by copying the neural pathways. For what it's worth, there was an interesting survey done on philpapers.com, where they surveyed over a thousand philosophers on their beliefs about common philosophical questions, and the majority of respondents, around 57%, said they believe that the mind is just physical, that there's nothing more to us than our physical bodies, our brains, and the processes that go on inside. I'll pop some more information on this debate onto the website because there's so, so much more that you can go into about these different theories of consciousness and what they say about the possibility of mind uploading. 
but whichever side you fall onto, the implications on our prospects for life extension are vast. If we were to get to the stage where we could upload minds, and if you mix this with Quranics, there's no telling as to how long we could extend our lives by. The kind of Quranics that's currently on offer with the likes of Alcor, as we've said, would only extend our lives for maybe a few hundred years or so, offering us the possibility to continue in our old bodies, but bodies that will inevitably be destroyed at one point or another. But when you throw mind uploading into the mix, you're no longer constrained by the limitations of your physical body. If your mind were housed in some kind of computer, you wouldn't be subject to the kind of accidents or diseases that might destroy your physical body. There's every reason to think that you might find yourself living for far, far longer. And then what's more is that if the computer housing your mind was much more powerful than a human brain, your mind would be running faster, so much faster, you could do so much more, experience so much more in any given period of time. The kind of life extension on offer here seems so much more profound than with traditional cryonics. As I've said, whether or not mind uploading turns out to be possible largely hinges on the kinds of conclusions we reach regarding the nature of consciousness, and this is still up in the air. We don't know how this will turn out, but what we do know is that work is being done and progress is being made. I was doing a bit of digging online recently, and I came across an interesting company. If you listened to the episode on simulation theory recently, you might remember those mysterious Silicon Valley scientists who are apparently working on busting us out of the simulation. Well, with this company, there's another just as strange Silicon Valley rabbit hole to dive into. So this company, Nectome, they seem pretty big in the sciencey futurology world. They came through Y Combinator, which is more or less the most prestigious funding program going for new startups. And Sam Altman, the former president of Y Combinator, is actually personally invested in their project himself. And what they've done is, they've taken a look at the process of cryonics, and they've seen that the way that bodies are frozen isn't perfect, it leads to cell damage and it makes it very difficult to ever reanimate the body. So, rather than waiting until the person is dead and essentially freezing them like the Cryonics Institute do, they've come up with a different process. Instead, to preserve the body, they don't freeze it, they just pump the brain with these kinds of embalming chemicals that preserve the neural structure so that they can create a perfect map of the patient's brain. And with a perfect map of the brain, if you're the kind of person who believes that the roots of consciousness lie in physical processes, you may well have the key to restoring that person's consciousness. The only trouble, though, is that they can't produce a perfect map by embalming the brain of a dead person, whereas embalming the brain when the patient is alive would kill them. So, as Nectome said on their website in a bit of a PR nightmare, their process is 100% fatal. You can't survive it. I think the idea of this process is it's basically euthanasia with a twist. It's euthanasia because it'll kill you when you do it. But it could well allow the team at Nectome to reanimate you once they've mapped out and recreated your entire neural structure. So when you think about Nectome and their project, the kind of life extension they might have on offer could be almost limitless. If we could transcend our physical bodies, presumably we'd be able to avoid the kinds of illnesses, diseases and accidents that plague our physical bodies. We'd be able not just to extend life, but to avoid death for a very long time. 
and this looks like quite a bit of a different prospect than traditional cryonics. Because to the extent that cryonics would ever even work, as I say, it'll just bring some modest life extension, allow us to spend more time on our hobbies, acquire more knowledge, maybe make more scientific discoveries, but nothing that would completely alter who we are, why we exist. But with mind uploading, and the prospect of living many, many more times as long in artificial bodies or maybe even in a computer program, as I say, this would radically alter the kinds of lives that we might expect to lead. Because living for such a longer period of time, there's every reason to think that the kinds of projects we might spend our time on would be very different to what we spend our time on today. I mean, in our current lives, where we can expect to live around 80 years or so, most of us spend quite a bit of time investing in our career capital, building up our careers from a young age, and make sure that we have enough money to retire on. But a life where we lived for many times as long could free us up to work on a whole host of other things, maybe some kinds of project that might even last hundreds of years, the kinds of projects we don't consider today because we don't have enough time to achieve, but which much longer lives could open the door to. We don't know what a good mind-uploaded life might look like, what our purpose might be, and what kinds of things we'd want to achieve. But beyond that, I think that probably the most significant question when it comes to mind-uploading is what does this say about the kinds of people that we are? What implications might this have on our personal identities? You see, probably for a lot of people, you'd think that if you were reanimated after a long period of cryonic preservation... It'd be you. You'd have the same body, the same brain, you'd think and act in the same way. It'd be just like you'd woken up after a long sleep. But this might not be so clear in the case of mind uploading. I mean, for argument's sake, let's say that we went along with the Nectone program. We're on our deathbeds and we opt in to have our brains embalmed and recreated in some computer program. Then, sometime down the line, once the mapping has been completed, once the simulation of your brain's been built and switched on, the mind is brought to life, a mind with all your memories, all of your thoughts, your desires, a mind who identifies as you. But they don't have your body, they don't have your brain. This is one of the biggest questions in philosophy, the question of whether this new being is you, or just a copy of you. And there's a big difference between the two. It, it matters whether it's you or just a copy of you. Imagine, for example, that you have a Sony 40-inch TV, and it's some specific model. And one day, there's a huge fire in your house. You manage to save your family, a few precious possessions, but your TV is lost to the flames. So you call up your insurance company, and they're able to replace the television for you. You get a new one just like before, same size, same model. In all respects, it's just like the TV you had before, if a guest came into your living room, they wouldn't be able to tell it apart from your old one. But it's not the same TV as before. It might be an exact copy, the same in all respects, but they're different objects. We're talking about two different TVs here. And to apply this to mind uploading, according to some philosophers, if you were to upload your mind and bring it to life, this wouldn't be you, just like you wouldn't have your old TV back after the fire, It'd just be a very good replica of you, a copy of you, just like your new TV is just a copy of the old one. Some philosophers are on the other side, they think it would be you. If they have the same thoughts, memories and all of that, that's enough to make you the same person. It's probably one of the most contentious fields in philosophy, but it makes a huge difference to how we should think about mind uploading. Because if it is you, that's great, 
you've got the potential to evade your physical death and to live a digital afterlife many times as long as your biological life. But if it's not you, signing up to Nectome could be a grave mistake. If you underwent embalming, it'd kill you, but you wouldn't survive the process. You wouldn't come out the other end. It'd just be some copy of you, like you in every respect, but still essentially a different person. By signing up to the Nectone program, you'd be sacrificing your own life in order to give life to a copy of yourself. It's a hugely contentious field. You'll find philosophers who think that an uploaded mind would be you and that you would be the same person, and there are others who think that this would be a different person entirely. It's a mind-boggling question, and it can be kind of hard to figure out where you stand on it. But there's a thought experiment devised by Derek Parfit that you can use to test whether you're the kind of person who thinks that the digital mind would be you, or whether the person on the other end would just be a copy, a version 2 of you. So the way this thought experiment goes is, imagine at some point in the future and teleportation devices have been created. You've got a device in your living room, so you step in, and the machine scans your body down to the smallest level of detail, down to the smallest particle, and it takes you apart, atom by atom, in an instant. And at the speed of light, the machine sends this information to Mars, where another teleportation machine puts you back together again, atom by atom. A person steps out of the machine onto Mars, they're just like you in every respect. They remember living your life up to the point that you stepped into the device. They have the same personality as you, they walk, talk and look just like you. So the question asks, is it you who steps out of the machine onto Mars? Or are you killed when the machine destroys your body on Earth? If you think it would be you on Mars, this would count in favour of mind uploading. If a recreation of yourself in perfect detail is you, then an uploaded mind would also presumably be you, and you could continue living in this digital afterlife. But that's not the end of the thought experiment. If you think that the person on Mars would be you, then what would you say if we adjusted the example just a little bit? So now let's imagine that the machine malfunctions, it doesn't destroy your body on Earth, and you walk back out into your living room, but the information is still sent to Mars. So as you walk back into your living room, puzzled as to why you didn't arrive on Mars, another version of you then steps out of the teleportation device onto Mars. Now it seems a bit more difficult to say that the person on Mars is you, because you'd then be committed to saying that you exist in two different bodies at the same time. You currently exist both on Earth and on Mars. But this doesn't really make sense. Surely only one of you can be you. So which one is it? Again, there's a huge field of literature surrounding this that's really interesting to get into. But the kinds of answers we reach are absolutely vital to the way that we think about mind uploading. Because ultimately, the same kind of thing is going on in the teleportation case as is going on with mind uploading. In either case, you're creating a copy of your own mind. So if you're someone who thinks that a copy would be you, and that the person on Mars would be you, then that's great, presumably an uploaded mind would also be you. But if you're someone who thinks that a copy of you is just a copy, and that teleportation would kill you, then you'd stand to have less to gain from mind uploading, because the uploaded mind wouldn't be you. There really is no consensus though. As it happens, the same survey on philpapers.com that I mentioned earlier also asked philosophers what they think about teleportation, and their answers were more or less split equally down the middle. 
some people think you'd survive, and some people say that you'd die. And until we get to the bottom of these deep philosophical mysteries, you know, what is consciousness and could it be replicated? If you did replicate your mind, would it be you? And is life extension something worth fighting for in the first place? Until we can answer these questions, then the great question remains as to what we could stand to achieve by mastering the arts of cryonics and mind uploading. If we think it's worthwhile, then perhaps hundreds of years from now, ourselves, our friends, our families could all be given a second shot in a world where death no longer looms on the horizon. Maybe in our own bodies, maybe in an artificial body, or maybe in some computer program. Or if not, maybe death really is the end of the story. Unfortunately, almost everything in this month's episode remains an open question. We don't know if cryonics will work, or if mind uploading is possible, or whether the reanimated person really would be you. But there's a ton of interesting work being done on these questions, and if you want to dive a bit deeper into theories of consciousness, or personal identity, or anything else we've spoken about in this episode, i put some useful resources on the recommended reading page on www.searchingforit.org. And if you want to support the show, you can pledge your support on www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it, where there's a range of goodies to be had, including early access to episodes, shout outs and searching for it t-shirts. Or otherwise, I really can't overstate how much of a help it is if you're able to leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or on whichever app you use to listen to your podcasts. I'll be back in the next episode with what'll probably be a final sci-fi themed podcast, this time on the philosophy of time travel. And until then, thanks for listening. Thank you.